the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics, while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and my name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, welcome everyone. We've been praying for you. And just some questions out here that I've had. How is everyone doing uh, during this pandemic? Are you getting deeper into God's Word? Are you enjoying the sunshine? Are you using this time to sit and have conversations that you normally wouldn't be doing or be too busy to have? Those are questions that we should be asking ourselves and and maybe being intentional with the with our days now that we have this opportunity in this pandemic to sit and rest. Well, let's welcome the man that's running the PhD marathon, Ryan Chilton. <laughs> and it is a, it is a marathon for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, boy. And how it's you know it's it's getting closer. You're winding down the time, and uh, it's you're now going to be getting into some pretty uh, intense stuff, huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually finishing out. I've got another paper to write for uh, Moral Apologetics with Dr. Baggett. He's actually now uh, answered prayer prayer request. He is uh, down in uh, Houston, Houston now safely. He and his wife, Mary Beth, Dr. Mary Beth, uh, bag it. They made it safely to Houston, so we wish them the very best as they start a new venture there at uh, Houston Baptist University, starting a new uh, a new center, a moral apologetics center there. And uh, I'm looking forward to see what God does with them there. I think this has the opportunity to become something really good uh, using mm-hmm. a moral apologetics. So uh, excited for them. Obviously. Um, they're going to be missed at Liberty, and so, uh, but uh, yeah, Moral Apologetics finishing up an independent study on uh, Jonathan Edwards, which has been a very fascinating study. But coming this fall, the big one, Bibliology, is the toughest uh, class in the entire program. That's coming up in uh, with. Uh, Dr. Morrison, and then they have Dr. Campbell for uh, natural theology, which should be a wonderful class as well. So looking forward to it. A little intimidated, I'll be honest. Uh, these will be the last two uh, classes. If I survive this, we'll be uh, entering into uh, comps and dissertation uh, coming up next year. Uh, I was talking with Chris Berg. He was on the podcast not long ago. He's wrapping right. up his dissertation, so he was giving me some pointers to look forward to uh, next year so god willing we're in the final stages of the classroom and uh, looking forward to the the next sections coming up hopefully uh starting next year man that's going to be fantastic i'm excited to to see some of the papers that come out of that absolutely absolutely (laughs) yeah so the topic for today uh is the sabbath why don't we go ahead and get on into it Absolutely, this this should be a, a real fascinating podcast, and I'm excited. I'm excited for this one. Yeah, yeah. So let's start out by asking, what is a Sabbath? Well, simply put, the term Sabbath uh, or the Hebrew word Shabbat is a derivation of a Hebrew word meaning to cease or to desist. So it has the idea built within the word itself of rest to cease from normal activities, to desist from the normal 
modus operandi, if you want to say that, the, the normal mode of operation. So the Sabbath uh-huh. day, generally speaking, lasted from Friday evening until Saturday evening. And uh, during this time, all normal work would cease. So it has in mind uh, the, the whole idea, the whole concept of rest. Uh, and, and so this also came about from uh, the seven days of creation where God worked the first six days of creation and then on the seventh day took a rest. And so I'm sure we'll get more into that as we go through. But that's, that's the, generally speaking, that's what this, uh, the, the Sabbath or the Shabbat was a time of rest. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I, you know, I noticed that there's um, there's quite this is going to be quite a controversial subject, you know, because um, there's people that are that hold to it in both different sides. So I'm curious to see where this goes. Absolutely. So um, the question, one of the questions I come up with on this was, um, how was it beneficial to Israel, and what did it do in its original context? This, this is fascinating. God gave Israel the Sabbath day as a time to serve him and as a reminder of two great theological truths, creation and redemption. So first, God created all that exists. Uh, and so the Jewish obedience or the, or the believer's obedience to him reminded the people that the earth belonged to the Lord. Uh, everything in it belonged to him. And so secondly, they were reminded of a time where their labors would cease and when they would live in perfect harmony with their creator and with creation itself. If you go back to the fall, uh, we're, we're reminded that, uh, that there were certain curses that came about. And one of them was that uh, creation itself uh, was, was imbued with this curse, so to speak, that the labors of humanity would be far more strenuous than they needed to be because of the sin that was interjected into creation itself. So, again, the Shabbat or the Sabbath day reminded people that, uh, one, they needed to devote themselves to the Lord because everything belonged to Him. And secondly, they were reminded of a time when they would cease from their labors uh, and, and when their work would be more fruitful and wouldn't have the problems that they had. So, the Shabbat or the Sabbath day included these these theological truths, this mode of worship. Another thing that's interesting to remember in this is that seven is a number that is holy to the Lord. Uh, it, it's interesting the numerology involved and the symbolic meaning of numbers. Six is a number uh, which represents creation. And, and it's one number less than perfection. Seven is the number of perfection. It's a divine number. So that's why in Revelation we see that the perfect, oh, it, the tri- tripartite version of a number was the perfected version of that number. So uh, in, in Hebrew and Greek understanding. So 666 is the, 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 the whole sum or the perfected version of, of imperfection. So that's why that's the mark of the beast. 777 is the number of perfection. It is a holy number. That's why the the number of the Trinity is 777, because it's uh, perfection in its perfect form, or perfection perfected, so to speak. Um, Now, interestingly, uh, when we talk about about, uh, the New Day 
coming about. Resurrection, new beginnings, a new creation, that number is eight. And it's interesting that the, the, the name of the, the Hebrew Aramaic version of Jesus' name, uh, Jesus has a numeric value, a numerical value that we'll, that we'll talk about. I think I have this in my notes somewhere. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the podcast. But it has a numerical value that is quite fascinating. But um, going back to the topic at hand, there were seven days of creation. On the seventh day, God took a rest. And the word in Hebrew in Genesis 2-2 for rest is the Shabbath. Uh, it means a rest. Now, here's the interesting thing. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't uh, is not exasperated. These are anthropomorphisms, uh, human terms applied over to God. So why did God rest? He didn't need rest. He didn't get tired. Why did he take a rest? Well, the reason he did is he's pointing to a time where he would have communion with his creation. So God doesn't get tired, So, but he chose a time to have communion with his creation. So this pointed toward a day where people would have communion with the creator. So the people of Israel were instructed in Exodus 16.23 to take a day of Shabbat, uh, Shabbat, uh, a day of rest. And so Moses writes in Exodus 16.23, Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. In Exodus 16, 25-29, they were given manna. The Lord gave them manna, but he instructed them to gather up all the manna so that on this seventh day, the Shabbat, they would, would store it ahead of time so that they could enjoy perfect communion with their Creator, the one who gave them the manna from the land. From the land. So on this day of Shabbat, the people worshipped the Lord by offering sacrifices, by being in the temple, uh, by, or, or later on in Jesus' day, they were in the synagogue meetings, which greatly resembled modern-day worship services in most churches. Um, this was a take time not only of rest for the body, but of finding rest with the Creator. Um, in the Ten Commandments, God said to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, Exodus 28. Now, does this necessarily mean Saturday? Not necessarily, as we're going to see in the New Covenant. But also in Leviticus, Leviticus 23, uh, 32, it says, It'll be a day of Sabbath, of complete rest for you. You must practice self-denial. Self-denial here means uh, resist the urge to work on this day, but find rest and communion with the Lord. So here's the thing that we need to understand. As we go through this, we'll come back to this concept. Sabbath was God's gift to the people. Now, here's an interesting thing that I found when researching this. God's Sabbath day starkly contrasted the governance that the people had suffered under Egypt's Pharaoh. Pharaoh persistently forced the people to work without rest. They were to keep working and working and working and never had a time of rest. God, the good ruler, gave them a time to rest and have communion. Rest for their bodies, peace for their souls. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So then, 
moving on to the next question then should we practice a sabbath yes and no so um the answer is multifaceted so first of all we have to understand that as as people of faith as the people of god we're no longer under the old law we're under a new law a law of grace um we still should regularly practice a time of rest through the week. Okay, God didn't design the body to run at full speed all the time. Um, now, now, Curtis, you have some you have some experience working with mechanics and things of this nature. I was thinking of an illustration, thinking of two car engines. You know, think about one car engine running constantly at a full speed, never getting any rest, and pedal to the metal as hard as it can run 24-7 without a rest. And think of another engine running at a lower speed and giving bre- giving brakes. I would about bet, not being a mechanic, but I would about bet that the engine running at full speed, never having rest, would break down far quicker and far sooner than the other engine would. Um, oh yeah, it would. It would. <laughs> it would uh, self destruct. <laughs> self destruct, and I don't know what the time frame would be, but I would. I would dare say that it would probably self destruct pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about the body being a a machine, um, the same is true for the human body. You know, I, I watched a documentary on Netflix not long ago. Uh, you know, and I, I used to power lift, and I still work out with weights and stuff like that. But um, I can tell in my, being in my mid forties that my body is take is 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 taking a toll. All the heavy lifting I've done in the past is starting to take a toll on my body. And I watched a documentary on the great Ronnie Coleman, who was uh, the eight time Mister Olympia. And, and this guy, man, he packed on the muscle because he would work out with heavyweights. A lot of, a lot of bodybuilders would, would work out heavy, but they would go for repetitions. This guy tried to push his body to the max, see how much he could lift. Nowadays, he's still lifting, but he has to walk around with a walker or these walking sticks because his back is shot, his knees are shot. Uh, he, he doesn't have much feeling in his feet anymore. Um, he pushed his body so hard that now his body is broken for it. Now, other bodybuilders who they may not have they may not have had as many Mr. Olympias, uh, but like Jay Cutler, he's another a bodybuilder, a four-time Mr. Olympia. He went at this working with a little lighter, taking you know maintaining his body. A lot more, and he's still in good shape today. But he's not as broken physically as Ronnie Coleman is now. If you asked Ronnie Coleman, was it all worth it? He would say absolutely. It, it was worth it because he had that drive to be the very best. But the point is, is that if you if you mistreat your body and you abuse your body, your body's not going to have the duration of someone who doesn't push as hard so to speak. God, who is the master scientist, God, who's the master engineer, he is the master mechanic, if we we think of it this way, knows how the human body is geared because he created it. And he knows that for our own well-being, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, holistically, 
that we need a time of rest and we need a time of rest even from technology especially from social media we need breaks for to, to recharge ourselves to get ourselves fully functional the way God intended us for, for, for us to be so that's why Jesus said in Mark 2 26 when he was confronted by some of the the, the teachers and rabbis of the day about whether or not they they kept Sabbath the way they should Jesus asserted that the Sabbath was made for man Sabbath was God's gift for man not man for the Sabbath so the the Sabbath is God's gift to us so I think we should spend time in the week or should take time to spend in the week to spend with God and get the necessary rest we need uh, however for those in the new covenant we it, this may we're under a new dispensation of grace, a new covenant. This may look a little different for us than what it necessarily would for for people under the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and what you were talking about there, what you touched on there was you know holistically. Um, I remember a teaching that we had. It was talking about you know um, even just down to our soul, our soul health. You know, and taking that rest to let our soul actually uh, be able to reset or be able to um, find its find its uh, momentum back. You know, back into as we go into the day or go into the next week, allowing those those moments to rest, and that builds in our soul that then we feel energized and recharged and we can actually complete the day. And you know, Curtis, this is something that a lot of times is missed in New Testament studies. Jesus himself, now now we think of Jesus being the Son of God, and it's important that we do. We, we see his divine nature as we should. But there's a balance to Jesus we have to understand, that he was divine, but he was also humid as well. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, we see, took time to rest and pray. He took time. He would go to desolate areas. And he would take time to uh, get away from the crowds, to get away, to get in nature with the Father, one-on-one with him and the Father, away from folks to recharge himself. And if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to do that, how much more do we as normal individuals need to do the same. Uh-huh. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and so um, what does uh, what does the Sabbath look like for a Christian then? Okay, and so this this is going to tie into our next question, but Jesus stated in Mark 2, 23-28, that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, let me get my Bible here and, and read it. Um, yeah, okay, I'm going to read from. I normally use the the CSB for uh, this, but I have the the New King James, and this is just more handily readily available to me. So I'll just turn here in the New King James. Matthew, uh, let's see, excuse me, Mark chapter two. Um, uh, Mark chapter two, verses twenty three through twenty eight. So let me just read this in its totality. It says, Now it happened when he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. Now this was disallowed, not by by the biblical law, 
but by the oral traditions, the the uh, the oral law, the the Talmud, the laws that were added on by the rabbis to to the word of God. It says it happened as he went through the grain field on the Sabbath that they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain, and the Pharisees said to him. Now again, Jesus probably had the most in common with the Pharisees of any other branch of Judaism. He said, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat. Now, the showbread would be in the high, the the high, uh, the holy place, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests. And also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, and that this is important for us to understand: the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is a this is a divine name. Uh, Jesus uses for himself. This isn't in John's gospel. This is in Mark's gospel. The Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, the Lord of the Shabbat. So he is, in other words, he's linking himself with God who gave forth the festival uh, or, or the day of Sabbath for individuals. And again, it's important to remember, this is God's gift to us, not an obligation um uh, this is something God gave to us, not something we do for God. This is why it's the Sabbath day is important for us to take time to commune with God. So Paul also notes that Christians are no longer required to keep the Sabbath as was traditionally understood. And there's a reason for this as we're going to look at in our next question. He says in Colossians 2.16, Therefore, and this is the CSB, Therefore don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. So here's the thing we have to understand. Christianity moved into various areas. Gentiles were accepting Christ, and sometimes, in some places, even more than Jewish individuals were, as missionary territories expanded. The Gentile was accepted by Christ just as much as the Jewish individual was, so for some people, they believe they should keep the Sabbath day on the Saturday. For others, they believe they should move it to the new day of rest that they, that they celebrated on the Lord's Day. Paul says, listen, we're not under the, under the old law. We're under the new law of grace. Therefore, if you, if you want to keep the Sabbath day on Saturday, well and good. If you want to keep the Sabbath day on the Lord's Day, well and good. But we're no longer under these restrictions that we were once before, before Christ came. So the Sabbath day looks different than it did for for people of faith before Christ came. Uh Yeah, and so all of this, um, you know, you look at the pattern of of the Sabbath and what we're understanding now so far into into these questions. And then what is it? What's it doing for the Christians now? And and you're starting to see that what that what that pattern is, or the idea behind it is, it's pointing to a rest, a rest that's to come, either a rest that's to be or a rest that is to come in the future. And so the, these are the patterns. These are the things that we're starting to see that I that I'm starting to see come out of this. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And as so we were talking about before the podcast, there's there's a lot of things in in the Old Testament that are that are uh, and even with the laws and the uh, well, let, let me go ahead and just say this here. We were talking about this before the podcast, and this is important for understanding the law of God under the new new law of grace. Being Christians, understanding the law. In the law, there are three types of laws. There are civil laws, which are which are laws governing the people of Israel under the um, nation that they found themselves at that point in time. A lot of those laws are no longer binding on new Christians. Uh, there are ceremonial laws, laws that uh, govern the worship of God under the old law of uh, under the old law, the old covenant. A lot of those may not uh, apply over to Christians. There are moral laws. Now, these are transcendent ethical laws that God gives, which underlie all of the laws in the Old Testament. Now, moral laws are transcendent and apply to everyone for all time and all places. While we're no longer under the civil law and no, we're no longer under the ceremonial laws, it's important for us as we look back to the law of God to find those underlying moral laws behind the civil and ceremonial laws. And in so doing, we can find the reason why God gave these laws to the people and understand the moral ethic that God is giving uh, underlying those other laws and rules and regulations. And in so doing, we also find that uh, with some of the ceremonial laws, we also find with uh, the, the temple complex itself, they're pointing to something greater. Their typologies many times pointing to Christ. As we were talking before the podcast, um, I think you mentioned something, Pastor Lynn had mentioned something about this as well, but we were talking about the temple complex, how the temple itself anticipates or actually was a um, symbol, symbol of the throne room of God. So when the high priest goes in the Holy of Holies, it represented that he went into the very throne room of God, and that's where the Shekinah glory of God would meet him on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, interestingly, when Christ died, the veil of the temple, the curtain separating, the thick curtain, this was a very thick curtain. This is not something that could be easily ripped. It's not like tissue paper. I'm talking about very thick fabric of blue, uh, scarlet, and purple was ripped from top to bottom, not bottom to top, but top to bottom, meaning this was a divine act of God that probably accompanied the earthquake. But what happened is, according to what even some historians say, that you could stand in the courtyard and look into the Holy of Holies because at that time, people were given open access to the throne room of God so that you don't need a priest any longer to stand between you and God. Christ is now our high priest who allows us to have open access to the very throne room of God. And so we look at these Old Testament laws, we look at the ceremonies, and they are somewhat prophetic in the sense that they are looking forward to the time of Christ. Right. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. And I could go into a few more things about about the about the high priest and about how um, the words Jesus said to Mary um, at the at the tomb when she when she turns and says, um, you know, sees him as a gardener, and he says, "Mary," and she says, "Rabbi." 
and then he has to tell her, "Hey, don't touch me, because I'm 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 about to go in to the holy of holies. I'm about to go in to fulfill the priesthood duties." Wow. Powerful stuff. And, and I think it's important to to uh, as an apologetic there as well. Uh, there, there's a question as to. And and this this is this is probably going to divert divert us over. Did she actually physically touch him? And that's that's a topic for another podcast. I, I won't go there because that can get into <laughs> divert yep. us from our course here. <laughs> yep, yep. That's the dangers of of having this <laughs> having this podcast. Um, so, did the early church still practice a Sunday Sabbath, or did uh, it change early on? This this is an interesting topic because Jesus kept the festivals and and Paul uh, there, there's even converse, uh, conversations being had even now uh, did Paul keep some of the festivals early on and it appears that he probably did keep some of the festivals he probably still went to the temple even though they were under the new covenant. Uh, James probably still kept a lot of the festivals early on uh, and, and still went to synagogue and, and things of that nature. Uh, James in Jerusalem, talking about Jesus' brother, ha- actually had a somewhat decent relationship with uh, some certain individuals of the Sanhedrin. Of course, we know Josephus and and um, um, Nicodemus were, were followers of Christ, uh, even though they were part of the Sanhedrin. There again... We often, unfortunately, there have been interpreters, Martin Luther being one of them, who became anti-Semitic in their interpretation. But it's important for us to understand that not everyone in the Sanhedrin was against Jesus. When they had the trial of Jesus, it was a monkey trial. There were a few people in there, the Sanhedrin, who were against Jesus, and they held a monkey trial, an illegal legal trial. Uh, they got their own individuals who would go for this. Obviously, there were others who, who weren't. Uh, in favor of doing this. So the whole proceeding was illegal. So it's erroneous for us to say that all Jewish individuals or all Jewish leadership was against Jesus because it's just simply not true. Um, So yes, there were some people who still kept the festivals very early on, but it seems like the official day of worship in the church gravitated from Saturday over to Sunday morning. Now this has a huge apologetic significance because this is one of the things that lets us know that the resurrection of Christ actually happened because it happened on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, which is what it was called by early Christians. So Jesus and the earliest disciples, even though they met in the synagogue, Peter even lived close to the synagogue. Archaeological evidence suggests that uh, Peter's house was just almost right next door to the synagogue in Capernaum. They even found in the room that is believed to have belonged to Peter, they found fish hooks, fishing hooks and things of that nature, fishing apparatus in uh, in uh, Peter's, Peter's uh, room. So there are good reasons for believing that this was the house of Peter, close to the synagogue. However, uh, two things changed the way Christians viewed worship. First was the resurrection of Christ that happened on the first day of the week. And that that led them to change the day of worship, not on Saturday, but to Sunday, early Sunday morning. So Acts 20, verse 7, we see on the first day of the week, which was a Sunday, 
We assembled. Luke here uses the we, which means Luke was in attendance. We assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking to midnight. Now, we get, we start complaining. Catch this. We start complaining. Now, remember, these were house churches, okay? These were house churches. The first official church devoted specifically to Christ did not come about until 250 A.D. That's 220 years after uh, Jesus um, resurrected. But having said that, uh, this time, a lot of times they met in homes, they met in synagogues. Uh, but Paul spoke to them first day of the week. He kept on talking till midnight. They met early in the morning, and he kept talking all the way to midnight. And they went so long, the story goes, that a person fell asleep and fell out the window and died. <laughs> Talk about a long-winded preachers. <laughs> That was always my that was always my joke uh, with our pastor. It's like he, he's like, "Well, I'm going long." I'm like, "Well, there's no open window, so yeah. <laughs> let's not go to midnight." You know, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the story. Somebody, you know, a pre- I heard a preacher says, "I won't go past twelve midnight." You know, so you know, but uh, but so this was a long service, and this kept going on, and a lot of it again, this wasn't just them sitting there having a worship service as we have it. This was a house church; people were going in and out. Uh, they had activities for the day, no, no doubt about it. But they had theological conversations, deep theological conversations like we're having now. And mm. oh, how the church has departed from its roots. Yeah, yeah. now it's a uh, 30-minute hurry-up-get-done preacher because i got to go watch a football game. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and I think, that's, I think that's partially part of why I think this this subject has, has perked my ears or, or made me want to speak about it is is um you know there's a time where um where we got to get back to understanding that that god's rest is is given to us but yet what do we do on that day you know the the things that we the things that we do um you know having conversations pointing people towards god or just enjoying the time and the life with with friends and family. Absolutely. I think that's important. Yeah. Yep. Also in 1 Corinthians 16.2, we see on the first day of the week, uh, Paul writes, Each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made until when I come. It was recognized on the first day of the week they were coming to worship. He's talking about collecting money. Uh, to, I think this is, if I'm not mistaken, is where he talks about collecting money to the people in need in Jerusalem and sending money there. John, catch this, when he has the revelation, he says, I was, in Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is understood to be early Sunday morning. And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. So first of all, the resurrection happened on early Sunday morning. And that's when the Christians began to worship on early Sunday morning. Second, Gentiles, we, we talked about this already, they began receiving Christ. As the missionary journeys expanded from Israel to Europe, Africa, and Asia, people from various backgrounds received Christ, many of whom did not keep the Sabbath day and were uncircumcised. This posed a problem. Uh, some, pe- some scholars believe that John Mark, while on the missionary journey, journeys, was, was troubled by this, and maybe he may have even been the one to go back and report 
uh, this to the Jerusalem church, which caused the stink that happened, yeah. uh, and which may have been the reason why Paul did not want John Mark to go back on the missionary journey. But John Mark was the cousin of Joseph Barnabas, and that caused the disruption between Paul and Barnabas. So this led to A.D. 48. The church held its first council, this council of Jerusalem, to decide what were they, what were they to do with these right. Gentiles who were receiving Christ. Should they be circumcised or not? Paul brought, I believe, Timothy with him to this council who was uncircumcised. And Timothy went on to be a leader of the church. I believe, if I'm not, mista- if I'm not mistaken, I believe he remained uncircumcised. I think that's right, but I may be wrong on that. But anyhow... Uh, they accepted the fact that the Gentiles could be accepted in the church without being circumcised. This was a huge linchpin watershed moment for the church. Uh, had they had they had they expected people to keep the old law, this would have changed the dynamics of the church, and the gospel would have been lost under legalism. And thank the Lord, the Spirit guided them to go in the right direction. I mean, this this could have been a major shift in the church had they chosen wrong in this instance. So what James says, new converts were asked only to abstain from idolatry, to keep themselves sexually pure, and to keep eating, keep away from eating anything strangled or from blood. And this is basically keep away from pagan practices, purify yourselves in Christ, but these other things don't matter so much. Again, right. this was a pivotal moment. So as we're talking about numbers, here's the thing that's interesting, and I wanted to wait to bring this up until we talked about the Lord's Day. Because the Lord's Day, okay, you have seven days. Okay, You have six days of creation, the seventh day of rest. The Lord's Day, Sunday morning, represented something new. The eighth day, they understood, or Christians understood this to be the eternal eighth day, starting something new. Again, six is the number of creation. It's an imperfect number. Seven is a divine number representing perfection. Eight is a number representing new beginnings and resurrection. The early Sunday morning when Jesus was raised from the dead represented this new eternal day. Now, without going too deep in this, in Hebrew and in Greek, every letter has a numerical value. So every word in Hebrew and Greek has a numerical value. So you basically add up the number, the numerical value for the letters, and you, and you and you bring them together, add them together. Every single word has a numerical value, a numerical unit. That's why some people believe that six 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 may be a, referring to a person's name, possibly Nero's name ended up with being the numerical value of six six six. So. The mark of the beast is talking about an individual who would be a like Nero, but only worse. Interestingly enough, if you take the name Yeshua, or Yehoshua, Yeshua is the abbreviated form, and you take the numerical value of his name, you have the numbers 888. Resurrection, new beginning personified in Jesus. So... Here in Jesus, you have the new beginning personified, perfected in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, in Yeshua, you have the perfection of resurrection, the perfection of a new walk, the perfection of this new state of being, this new creation would come about because of Yeshua and the work that he did. 
So early Christians understood this because uh, like, uh, oh, what was his name? Uh, uh, I'm going to have to look on my shelf. I have him up here. Philo, Philo of Alexandria. Philo of Alexandria. He was, <laughs> had to recharge my mind here. He was, uh, he was really into numerical values and it's apparent that early Christians may have been as well. So they probably understood this Eighth day being this new eternal day brought forth by Jesus, Yeshua, and would be fully experienced in eternity with God. Again, pointing back to the garden, the new garden of Eden, which is found in the new creation, found in the totality, in the full experience of Shabbat for eternity with God, everlasting. Mm. Yeah, so that's pointing pointing to the rest. The, the eternal rest in Christ. The eternal rest. And I think that's what Shabbat was doing from the very beginning. Point, right. Looking forward to the eternal rest that would eventually happen. And I think, in a way of, in a manner of looking at it, Shabbat was looking forward to Christ who would bring about that new eternal day, uh, right. Yeshua. Right. And, and, you know, we, I guess we, I've always been taught uh, to look at you know, look for the look for the shadows. Look for the types and shadows because there's a there's a shadow caster. You know, you're looking at the shadow, but the shadow caster is, is Jesus, and 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 the things uh, that are written in Scripture um, have a purpose. God didn't write something just to write something. He he wrote things with a purpose. And that's absolutely right. And I, I think that uh, in fact most. Uh, biblical scholars would say today that a lot of the way the early Christians understood prophecy was in typologies. Yes, they saw literal fulfillment in things in Scripture. That's not to, to remove that. But they often saw typologies in the Old Testament. So you're absolutely right. Uh, these typologies are all throughout the Old Testament looking forward to a future Christ. So even Shabbat, the temple, looking forward to the new covenant and things that would come about in the Messiah. Powerful. Absolutely. Uh, powerful <laughs> stuff. So so what dangers theologically should we be aware of um, or careful of, um, like the dangers of legalism on one thing and grace on another? Yeah, and, and, I, and I go back to say legalism and liberalism are two sides of the very same coin. You know, we talk about liberalism, progressive theology, liberalism, and we should. It's dangerous. It leads to bad ends. But legalism is just as bad. Uh Legalism has the same problems that theological liberalism has. Uh, it, It removes the emphasis from the grace of God and places it on something else. Liberalism places the emphasis on license to do anything, which is not biblical. Legalism places the emphasis on the law in a works-based salvation which removes the need for the grace of God, which is just as bad, if not even worse, because in such a case we look to man-centeredness rather than God-centeredness. Now, Uh Galatians uh, 5, 1-7, Paul writes this, and I want to read this in its totality. For freedom Christ set us free, Paul says, stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And I wonder how many 
Christians and churches have done this very thing. They have submitted themselves to the yoke of slavery by man-made legalism rather than fully embracing the grace of God given to us in Christ Jesus. He says, Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note! Exclamation point. I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. In other words, if you're placing your emphasis on the law to save you, it's of no use. You're trying to save yourself. You can't save yourself. Christ came to save us is what he's saying. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. So if you think the circumcision is going to save you, you're going to have to keep every nth of the law for it to save you. Again, it's a work-based salvation. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. Did you catch that? Uh-huh. Alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Oh my goodness, that's powerful language. Uh-huh. He says, For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith, and faith is trust in Christ, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. And he goes on to say to the Galatians, he said, you were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? So here's the thing. We don't have licensure, licensure to to go and do about anything we please. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that modern Americans would would do well to understand. Freedom requires responsibility. Freedom doesn't mean that we can go out and do anything as we please to anyone at any time without any repercussion. I think that's the way people understand freedom. That's theological liberalism. Okay, Paul's not advocating that at all. We do need to have grace, have grace upon one another, but we have to understand that the freedom we have in Christ comes with great responsibility. It's kind of like the old Spider-Man thing. It says, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, I think that's what Paul's telling us too. You know, we need right. to be responsible. But we cannot have this man-made legalism because the thing that separates Christianity from every other world religion is the fact that in Christianity, God came to save humanity. In every other worldview, humanity tries to save itself. Right. So that's why Paul is showing us that legalism is every bit as dangerous as theological liberalism. And Paul constantly confronted these Judaizers, the legalists of his day, and warned about the dangers of legalism using this terminology of saying that you have fallen from grace, you're alienated from Christ. This is very strong language. So he says, if you benefit from keeping the Sabbath on a Saturday, then do it. But if you don't, then don't. But he's basically saying, he would say, if he were here with us, he would say, the Shabbat, the Sabbath day festivities will not save you any more than circumcision will. The law cannot save you. Christ, only Christ could because of the sacrifice that God permitted to not save us from himself, but to save us from our sin, to essentially save us from ourselves. So salvation is found in Christ alone, not in a festival, not in a, not in a work, but in and through the work of Christ on the cross.
recognizing that 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 that's what that is, then those um, festivals or appointed times or the things like the Sabbath point us in a different direction, or I shouldn't say point us, but light light up that direction um, with with a whole different meaning and a depth to what those things bring to us. Absolutely. And, and I would say to Christians, if you want to go and you want to keep these festivals, if it aids you in worship to keep the, the, the festival of, uh, which of course with, for Christians, Pentecost has a different meaning because it's, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah, Sukkot or any of those. Sukkot, yeah. If you want to keep these festivals, if it aids your worship, by all means do it. But understand that keeping these festivals and, and doing these things, that's not what saves you. It's only right. Christ alone that provides salvation. So if you want to keep the festivals, keep them. If you don't want to keep the festivals, if it doesn't aid your worship, Paul says that's fine. We have liberty to keep the festivals or not keep the festivals. But the point is that salvation is found in Christ alone. And that's where our emphasis as believers must lie. That's why legalism is so attractive to individuals. Because it creates a false work-based righteousness. But in Christ we understand that only in Jesus and Jesus alone, only in Yeshua, do we find salvation. Right. Right. I mean, you look back at um, like the history of uh, Martin Luther, where where he talks about him, uh, you know, beating himself until he actually had the the revelation of 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 the scriptures of like, well, this is by grace we've been saved. By grace, absolutely. Yeah. And grace is God's unmerited favor to us. Here's the amazing thing about it. Just yesterday. Uh, I think it's cloudy tonight, so I can't do it tonight. I, I love stargazing. Um, went out, we went out there with my son last night. It was a good, clear night, and we got the telescope out. It's amazing. We got it out, and we pointed over to Jupiter, and Jupiter was shining last night. You could see it with the telescope. You could see the red storm. Uh, you could see all the different moons around it. They were shining brilliantly last night. You could see it with the telescope. Went over to Saturn. You could see the rings of Saturn, and you could faintly see it. I couldn't make it out quite well with my with my telescope. I don't have as powerful a telescope as I need. But right up above it were these galaxies, distant mm. galaxies. Amazing thing is, you could barely see them with with a telescope, but you could you could make them out just barely. These distant galaxies. Think about the God who created all those stars and galaxies chose to have grace upon us unmerited favor when we understand that we realize that that we serve a god of love and compassion who not because of anything we did or anything that was merited on our part but by his good loving favor decided to save us from our sins and our depravity and that is overwhelming when we stop and consider that a God like that would have that type of compassion upon us. Yeah, and show by by coming and and coming to us, um, you know, and and actually revealing Himself through a time of rest, through some of these moments uh, in in when He set aside these times for us. 
Absolutely. And the fact and the, the think that he would willingly come and die on a cross, the most excruciating death that a person could die. He would come and do that willingly for us. It's it's just mind boggling. It it baffles the mind about what how much love that is that a creator like that could have for us. It is really overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. So move on to the last question here and and we're getting close to time here so um why do americans have a two-day weekend this is this is really fascinating i had honestly curtis before you asked this question i had never even considered how we got the two-day weekend uh this is but this is a really fascinating study and actually in american history this um this um is it, is fascinating, and it and it's actually a, a somewhat a newer invention in the history of humanity to have a two day weekend. So I want to give you what I what I found out. There's probably more we could add to this, but according to Katrina Onstad's book, uh, the weekend effect, uh, the life, and I only just skimmed. I don't have this book. I skimmed through this online. The weekend effect, the life-changing benefits of taking time off and challenging the cult of overwork. So she says this whole idea of, of work overworking is, is a cult that we've adopted. She says the two-day weekend did not begin until around the 17th century. <laughs> but here's where it gets a little funny. It wasn't that the two-day weekend was necessarily intentional. Uh, the the idea of a weekend began with the Sabbath day of rest, which was which is something you find in Judaism. What we're talking about when Christianity exploded and the Western world became Christianized, Sunday was the venerated day of rest, as we've already mentioned, because Christians worship on Sunday morning because that was the day that was the time that Jesus resurrected. Well, in the 17th century, okay, this would be the 1600s. The 17th century gave rise to the idea of working men taking off Monday to spend the money that was often paid on Saturday. The, these Mondays, because so the paydays were on Saturdays, they worked on Saturday, they were paid on Saturday, they were off on Sunday because it was a day of worship. Well, these Mondays were called Saint Mondays and were often used by employers as a day to sober the employees after their days of drunkenness on Sundays. <laughs> so the two-day weekend was not intentionally done uh, because it was intentionally done out of necessity to sober up the guys who got drunk and spent their paychecks on Sundays. <laughs> not as much a spiritual story as I hope to share with <laughs> In fact, it was said that Benjamin Franklin impressed his his employer by showing up on Mondays because he wasn't drunk out of his socks. He actually showed up on Mondays and he impressed his employers and got ahead by actually showing up on Monday mornings. Well, by the 19th century, British factories began granting workers a half day off on Saturdays with... <laughs> With the understanding that the employees would show up sober to work on Monday. So they said, if you'll come in sober on Monday mornings, we'll give you a half day off on Saturdays. <laughs> so it became a way to try to keep the employees sober. In 1908, a New England cotton mill, I, I couldn't find what the name of the mill was, 
But, um, but the New England Cotton Mill established a new schedule that, uh, okay, so let me back up and say what happened here. In New England in 1908, there were Jewish employees that were asking to have Saturday off to have a Sabbath. And so they thought, well, maybe we'll move the day off from Sunday to Saturday. The Christian says, no, we want our day of worship on Sunday. And so to alleviate the, the, uh, the problem here, they decided to give both Saturday for the Jews and Sunday for the Christians, give both days off to have the established weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Well, Henry Ford loved the idea so much that he adopted it in 1926. Well, the new schedule was so successful that by 1929, uh, unions were demanding employers to do the same for the unionized employees under their watch care. By 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act established a 40-hour, five-day work week that has become the established norm for, uh, for citizens of the United States. The same work format was adopted by the European nations as late as the 1970s. So in Europe, wow. this thing didn't come about until the 70s. Islamic nations often use Thursday and Friday as their weekends, but that's actually shifting now because they're finding it difficult to, um, uh, to interact with Western cultures uh, in their business transactions. So they're actually adopting a, a, uh, either a Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend or a Saturday, Sunday weekend. Now, interestingly, I, I found in this as well that some are actually pushing to increase the work weekend to three days instead of just two. And it's interesting because Americans, you know, 40-hour work week is, is typically for most employers what's promoted. Uh, but a lot of Americans work much more than 40 hours. But here's the interesting thing I found, Curtis. Do you know what the typical work week for French employees are? No, I don't. 35 hours. That's considered <laughs> full-time for French employees. Uh, 35 hours. So time time will tell whether this new movement will gain any traction or not. But uh, but I did find that quite fascinating. Uh, it wasn't quite the spiritual story of development that I hope to share, but it <laughs> it's pretty much uh, the way it is. A lot of times we find history is a lot stranger than fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know you can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. That's right. <laughs> And you know what this does for uh, for our listeners today is maybe uh, adds a little bit of uh, a little bit of a light humor to it, and and allows us to to be able to lighten the load and have have a little better discussion about this. So, anyway, uh, want to just uh, say goodbye here, and uh, we've we've had a ball doing this uh, podcast. I've I've enjoyed every minute of it, and. Uh, um, I enjoy it. So if there's anybody that has questions, uh, please send them in. Um, and we'll, we'll hash through them and, and uh, hope to interact with you. So, but we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending the time together with us. And we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. 
The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christi Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast and bellatorchristi.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristi.com and the Bellator Christi Podcast. Some say the best Bible translation is the one that's most literal, word for word, through and through. But there's not always a direct English translation of ancient words. So others say the best Bible translation should favor readability, thought for thought, holding on to the same meaning. But we can all agree that the very best Bible translation is one you trust and one that you want to read. One that stirs your heart and moves you to share its truth. The Christian Standard Bible has been shown to be an optimal blend of accuracy and readability compared to other leading translations. The very best balance, faithfulness to the original text, and clear language that connects to the heart. After all, it's not so much about changing your Bible translation, but about seeing the Bible change your life. Point your heart to true north, the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is the official translation of bellatorchristi.com. Go pick up your translation of the CSB today.